You are listening to the Living Way Church podcast. For more information about Living Way Church, go to livingwaychurch.cc. Have you ever met somebody that the first time you met them, uh, you're like, man, this person's awesome. I really like this person. And then uh, the more you got to know them, you're like, uh, I don't know if I like this person. Have ever, have it, hopefully that's not me uh, and you. Uh, but there's some people like, man, this person's great. Or this, maybe you're dating somebody and you're like, he's everything you've ever wanted uh, if you're a girl and she's everything you've ever thought of in a woman. Uh, and then if you're a guy and then all of a sudden you get to know this person and the more you get to know this person, you're like, Ugh, there's so much about them, so many issues that, uh, mm, no, no, thank you. you know, have you ever had a job that maybe you thought was going to be the dream job? And then, the, and then you got to work and everything was great for a few weeks. And then all of a sudden you realize, you know what? The boss is a jerk. Uh, the work's not what I thought, and um, you just were ready to go. Anybody else? Okay. <laughs> How many of you in that job right now? Just checking. All right. How many of you have, have ever been like, uh, don't answer, don't raise your hand on this one, but I've talked to couples who have said, you know, uh, during the dating process, engagement process, it was wonderful. And then I got married, and it was like, wow, I thought I knew this person, and it changed everything. Well, today we're going to talk about a guy who you might know a lot about, but you're really going to get to know his dirty laundry. And that dirty laundry might affect the way that you think about him. We're going to talk about David. Uh, We're going to end the chapter on David, the section on David today. Next week, he passes the baton to Solomon, which is the last king we're going to take a look at. But today, David unveils, uh, well, some things about him that you might not have liked. This epic story that we've been talking about with kings covers the life of Saul, the life of David, and the life of Solomon. And it covers nine different books in the Bible. Each one of them were kings for 40 years. They were the first of the monarchy of Israel. And uh, they're the three that have shaped the Bible and the the perspectives of the Old Testament more than any others outside of Moses. In fact, the largest section narrative on a person's life other than the Exodus uh, with Moses is David's life. And today we're going to fly over a lot of his life. And I suggest that you read 2 Samuel on your own because today we're going to do a flyover of the last dozen chapters Uh, Because it's basically kind of the decline of David. Uh, A young shepherd boy from the fields of a small town of Bethlehem with a soft heart is made king. He's a person of valor, integrity, and passion. Uh, He has a love for the Lord. And his stories reflect a coming greater king. His life reflects Jesus. And he wants to build a house of worship for the Lord. But God says, no, I don't want a house of worship from you. Instead, I want to build a house of worship through you because your family is going to bring forth the Messiah. And he said, you're the house that I'm going to build. Well, the reign of David is filled with glorious battles. And it's uh, the rise of a great kingdom. He's the greatest king in all of Israel's history. Uh, It was a time of healing and provision. However, David was not perfect. And his reign was going great until halfway through. Then David's decline began to happen. And today, I want to heads up, this is rated PG-13 slash 
could be a lower R because of the content and the material that happens in David's life. And um, this is probably the, the saddest portion of scriptures, one of the saddest portions of scriptures in all of the Bible that we're going to be looking through today. Okay, so let's look at the struggles, the setbacks, and the sins of David's life. Years of David's triumph, now years of David's troubles. Let's begin with the troubles with himself. In 2 Samuel chapter 11, it says, In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, circle that, when the kings go off to war, when kings, when the weather was warming up, and the cold was gone, and the ice was melting, it was time to take back territory that had been lost by the enemy. And it was a time when kings took their men off to regain ground. But David, however, sent Joab, his commander, out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army, and he stayed back. It says, they destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained in Jerusalem. Now, what we're going to see here is that bad things often start when we're not where we're supposed to be. Okay? Verse 2, one evening David got up from his bed and walked around on the rooftop of the palace. Late night channel surfing. He was surfing the internet. He was by himself at night looking for something to get involved in. From the rooftop, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful. And David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, well, she's Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah, the Hittite. Then David sent messengers to get her. And she came to him and he slept with her. Now, some of you think, well, this is Bathsheba's problem just as much as it is David's. I, I would greatly differ with you because he's a king. All right. And in the culture of that time, when the king says, come to my house, you don't say I'm married. You don't say I can't. You don't say I'm not ready or I'm not interested because your life is on the line. He abused his authority, and pressured this woman to have sex with him. He brought her to his house, and he had sex with her. He slept with her. Now, she was purifying herself from her monthly uncleanness. Then she went back home. Now, I want you to understand, is that monthly time, many of you women know what that's about, but what you also know is that after that monthly cycle is when you're most fertile. That's what the Bible is saying. She was coming out of a cycle, She was very fertile. Verse 5, the woman conceived and sent word to David saying, I'm pregnant. So cue the soap opera music. Bum, bum, bum. It's like, just going downhill. I mean, here he is. He invites this woman. He pressures her to have sex, sends her back, not knowing that it's, she's very fertile. She has a baby. Well, she gets pregnant. So David sent his word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite, her husband. Let me talk to him. Bring him in, bring him in. So uh, Joab did that, and Joab sent him to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked him, so, how's it going, man? That's what it's, this is so obscure. Says when, then David said, uh, go down to your house and wash your feet. It says, first of all, it says, 
David asked him how Joab was, how the soldiers were, how the war's going. He's like, so how's Joab going, doing? You know, how's everything down at the war? Great, you doing good? Awesome. He's just shooting the breeze. In the back of his mind, he's conspiring a great cover-up. He's, he's conspiring a conspiracy. So then David said, well, you ought to go home and wash your feet. That's basically your wife washes your feet. So he says, you should go home and see your wife. So Uriah left the palace and a gift from the king was sent after him. That means David's like, you know what? I'm going to kind of maybe send some flowers to the house or a gift, something that will kind of stir the pot with Uriah and Bathsheba, maybe kind of do chikawawaw, kind of maybe get them going, maybe some candles, some scented candles and some chocolates are on their way. He sent a gift ahead. But Uriah slept at the entrance to the palace with all his master's servants and did not go down to his house. And David was told Uriah did not go home. So he asked Uriah, why didn't you go home? Haven't you just come from a military campaign? Why didn't you go home? So David's thinking, if I can get Uriah to go down there to his house and he can sleep with his wife, then they'll think that that's her baby. And, and this whole thing will be covered up. Well, Uriah felt like he couldn't go down and have relations with his wife or go sleep in a nice soft bed when his friends are on the front line and sleeping in tents. So he says, David, I couldn't do it because my friends are in tents. How can I go down to my house and, and live it up when my own friends and my soldiers and my, and my fellow countrymen are, are suffering? He says, no, I'm going to stay right here in honor of you and in honor of my men. Well, David fed him dinner, and then uh, he uh, gives a letter to Joab because that plan didn't work, so he thinks about another plan. And he says, here's what I want you to do, Joab. I want you to put Uriah where the fighting is the most fierce. I want you to put Joab in the middle of the war zone. In fact, he put a command to charge a city wall when it was completely unadvisable to do so. We find this later. So he sends him out there. They charge this city and an arrow goes right through the heart of Uriah where he dies. Fighting for David's honor, he is killed. David then pretends to be all caring. Oh, Uriah, where's his wife? Where? Who is she? Who is his wife? Bathsheba. And he, pretending to be a good king, brings her into her house as the culture. When a, when a wife is, uh, is lost, when her husband is lost, she's basically left without any living. All of the property goes to the men in the family, not to the women. So women who are widows are left destitute in the Bible. So David, pretending to be an honorable man, says, I will care for you. Become my wife and I will make sure that you are taken care of. So he marries her. In verse 26, when Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him. After the time of mourning was over, David had her brought to his house and she became his wife and bore him a son, But the thing David had done had displeased the Lord. That's pretty basic, right? Would you say everything about that story is wrong? Would you accept Uriah's bravery, his loyalty? He was a good man. Uriah was a good, solid person. Well, here's David's sin. David's sin was laziness. 
He was not where he should have been when God wanted to use him. Some of you guys, you, you, you're you not here on Sundays. Not that Sundays is going to save you because it's not only Jesus can, but this is a place where you're going to grow, where you're going to mature. And it's a discipline. It's a value you must treasure that keeps you plugged in and in accountability. Well, some people, they blow off that relationship with the community of Christ. They blow off that Bible study. They blow off the volunteering commitment. And, and all of a sudden, lady, laziness sets in. They, they start calling in from work. They they start skipping classes and and the idle mind becomes the devil's workshop and laziness was a sin. Arrogance was his sin. Lust that was out of control was his sin. Adultery, he slept with another man's wife. That was his sin. Lies, that was his sin. Murder, deception. This was an abuse of authority. Drunk on his power, he used his position to pressure her to have sex. God's response was David is that he sent a friend to him named Nathan. Nathan was not only a friend, but he was also a prophet and good friends confront the sin in our life. We're going to talk about this more in a minute. Some of you have a friend that is in sin right now. Maybe they're in the midst of of an adulterous relationship, or maybe they're in the middle of a relationship that's not godly, or maybe they're uh, in the middle of a of lying or deceiving or stealing or something wrong at work or a coworker or whatever. And, and you know what? You have a friend that needs you to be a Nathan. We're going to talk about this in a minute because that's the kind of man that God's called us to be. And the women is somebody like Nathan. Nathan meets up with David. He says, let me tell you a story, David. He says, I want you to imagine that I've heard about this poor man who had nothing at all in his possessions except for one little lamb. And this lamb he had raised since it was just a baby. And he took care of that lamb. He fed that lamb. He loved and treasured that lamb because it was his only great possession. And he says, but there's this rich man in town who has thousands of lambs and a visitor is coming in from out of town. And he decides to go over to the field of the poor man. And he takes his lamb and slaughters his lamb and feeds him as a dinner to the guest, just a simple, not important meal. And he slaughters this poor man's lamb. The Bible says that David stirred up with anger and he says, that man should die. That is so unjust. Nathan said, you're that man. This is what it says in 2 Samuel 12. It says, then Nathan said to David, you are the man. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel says to you. I anointed you king over Israel and I delivered you from the hand of Saul, and I gave you your master's house to you, and I gave you your master's wives into your arms, and I gave you all of Israel and Judah. And if this had been too little, I would have given you even more. God says through Nathan to David, I've given you so much, and it still wasn't enough. You had to take wasn't yours. Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and took his wife to be your own. You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. 
This was a sin against God and a sin against others. Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Nathan replied, the Lord has taken away your sin and you're not going to die. God forgave him, but there were consequences to his actions that we're going to talk about more in a moment. So that was the troubles within. Now let's look at the troubles with his family. So look at this in 2 Samuel chapter 13, verse 1, it says, In the course of time, Amnon, son of David, fell in love with Tamar, his sister. Okay? Amnon does not know what love is. The Bible says he fell in love. He fell in lust. He fell in sin in his heart with his own sister, Tamar, the beautiful sister of Absalom, son of David. His, it was his half-sister. And Amnon became so obsessed with his sister, Tamar, that he made himself ill. That's all he could think about. He was obsessed, sick with her. And it says she was a virgin. That meant that she was still a child. The average age for marriage at that time was mid to upper teens. So if she was still a virgin and she was in the king's household, she was a child. And it seemed impossible for him to do anything to her. So he confesses this to his uncle, David's brother. And his uncle gave him a plan and said, pretend to be sick. Ask her to come give you a meal. And when she comes in to give you a meal, have your way with her. This is sexual abuse and a cover-up. So she came over and she brought him a meal. And this is some of the most disturbing scriptures in all of the Bible is right here. Second Samuel 13, 11, this is when she took it to him to eat, he grabbed her and he said, come to bed with me, my sister. No, my brother, she said to him, don't force me. Such a thing should not be done in Israel. Don't do this wicked thing. And and then she starts trying to reason with him. What about me? Where could I get rid of my disgrace? And what about you? You would be like one of the wicked fools of Israel. Please speak to the king. He would not keep me from you. She's like, you know, if you just ask our dad, he might even let me marry you. Please don't do this to me. To hear this is painful. Verse 14, he says, but he refused to listen to her. And since he was stronger than she, he raped her. This is painful for some of you because some of you have lived through this. This is evil. This is pure evil. Then Amnon, this this is what sin does. The truth of his phony love became light When he says, then Amnon hated her with intense hatred. In fact, he hated her more than he had loved her. Amnon said to her, get up and get out. And the Bible says that she began to scream and plead and cry, please, 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 no, no. It's a disgrace. Don't kill me, please. And he called servants in and they dragged her kicking and screaming out of his house. This is evil. This is evil. Her brother, Absalom, finds out. 
her brother Absalom said to her, has that Amnon, your brother, been with you? Meaning, has he attacked you? Has he taken you? Has he hurt you? Did he have sex with you? Be quiet for now, my sister. He is your brother. Don't take this thing to heart. He goes, don't, basically, he's not saying not worry about it. He's saying, don't, I will take care of it. That's what he's basically saying. Because what he does is, is evidence that he deeply cares about her. And Tamar lived in her brother Absalom's house and he lived with her, a desolate woman. That means she never, ever, ever got married and never had a healthy relationship and never had possessions or anything. She was solely the property of Absalom to take care of. Now, Absalom ends up being a pretty bad character, but I believe he loved his sister. In fact, Absalom named one of his daughters Tamar. And the Bible says that she grew up to be very beautiful and that she took on the name of Tamar because he loved his sister. Tamar lived with her brother, a desolate woman. When King David, this is what breaks my heart. When King David heard all of this, he was furious. But that's all he did. And Absalom Absalom never said a word to Amnon, either good or bad. He hated Amnon because he had disgraced his sister Tamar. What eventually happens is Absalom lets it boil inside of him for two years. And after two years, he pretends that he's going to make nice with his brother and he invites his brother over to dinner. And while his brother's over there for dinner, he gets him drunk and stabs him to death. Then Absalom, knowing that he had murdered his brother, runs off and hides for the next three years and nobody hears from him. David's heart was broken for all of them, but he does nothing again. This is David's sin with this second issue is that he had neglect of the innocent. He did not stand up for the injustice that was taking place against the injustice that was taking place. He did not stand up for his daughter, Tamar. He was unwilling to deal with or confront the issues in an effort to keep the peace in his family. He swept it under the rug. Now, some of you have been a part of a situation like that as well. I cannot tell you how many families I talk to where there's been abuse and violence in the home, where there's been a parent that swept it under the rug, that didn't want to talk about it, that pretended it didn't happen, that maybe it would just go away, that somehow it would resolve itself just to keep the peace, just so that it wouldn't ruin a family reputation. Let's just keep quiet about this. I'm mad. I'm sad that it happened, but I'm not going to do anything about it. That's part of the pain of abuse that many people that have experienced that live with every day is that resentment that mom could have done something, that dad could have done something, that my family should have done something, but they didn't. And that is a sin. That was David's sin as well. So David... It's the kind of person that gets angry but does not correct. Some of you are guilty of that right now. David's all emotion. Some think that maybe his past struggles with his sin with Bathsheba had discouraged his courage with his kids. But let me tell you something. We must move past our failures or they will be our kids' failures too. You cannot allow your past sins and mistakes 
to discourage you from your courage to reach out and to confront your children and deal with the issues or your failures will become their failures. And you can't just be a person that yells and never does anything to fix or help the problem. Some of you, you're great at yelling, but that's it. This unfortunately happened again twice with another son years later. We're going to talk about that next week. David, again, did nothing to correct his son or talk to him and ended up with a brother murdering another brother. Let me tell you something, mom and dad, pay now or pay later. So here's a third area, and that is trouble with this nation. Trouble with his nation. He had trouble with his self, with himself. He had trouble with his family. Now here's trouble with his nation. First, it was known as Absalom's revolt. As you might know, after three years of running, Absalom wants to come back. His dad hasn't seen his face for three years. They're not talking. Uh, David refuses to see his face. Well, after two more years, that's a total of now five years, Joab comes back. He wants to talk to his dad. He calls up Joab and he says, Joab, I want to talk to my dad. Joab does not respond to the letters or the request. So Absalom goes over to Joab's house and catches his fields on fire. He's a crazy person. And he says, no, I will meet with my dad. So you catch the guy's field on fire and Joab says, cool it, dude. All right. You'll get that meeting with your dad. So he meets with his dad. They shake hands, but things are never the same again. Now, I want you to know this about Absalom. He was known for his good looks. He kind of looked like, like Byron. Because Absalom was known for his flowing long hair, which he liked to keep in a ponytail. <laughs> I don't know if he kept it in a ponytail, but the Bible does say that his hair was so long that it weighed five pounds. How much does your hair weigh? Do you have any idea? Three and a half. <laughs> so I, when I think of Absalom, I'm thinking like someone like Byron with his long flowing hair. But Byron's character is much better than Absalom. Over the course of time, four years, Absalom again starts basically throwing his own parades. He's, now that he's living in the kingdom again, but he's not talking to his dad, he starts going through the town and he throws his own parades and he's on top of of the float. And he starts setting himself up as a king. He starts telling everybody that he would be a better king than his father, that he would lower taxes. He mocks his father in front of others and he has complete disrespect. He had everything. Absalom was young. He had good looks. He had power. Absalom had popularity. He had political influence. He was going to cut taxes. He had this reputation of killing those that were unjust when he killed his brother. So he was looked as being honorable and just. Everything was going for Absalom except his disrespect for authority. In fact, he made everyone kiss his ring when he walked through the town because he gave the impression that he was the true king. And then he conspired to actually kill and overthrow his father. And when his dad heard, David ran from the kingdom and Absalom set himself on the throne. David quickly rebuilt an army and attempted to come back. And when he came back, the army split into two. And half of the army with Joab was chasing down Absalom. Here's Absalom riding his hair, you know, flowing, you know, because the Bible describes that he's running 
from the soldiers and his hair gets stuck in a tree. And the hair is just holding Absalom. He can't get out. To make a long story short, Joab comes up there and slices him up. And he kills Absalom. David hears about it. And he weeps for days, but he does nothing to correct Joab or Absalom's power. More trouble in his nation. There's another revolt that happened. A guy named Sheba, great political influence, starts rebellion against Israel. Joab, again, his dirty man, his henchman, hunts him down and has him killed. And then there was a time of three years of famine. And then there was a more and more wars. We had David had trouble after trouble after trouble. And then his last big trouble is found in the very last chapter of 1 Samuel. I'm sorry, 2 Samuel chapter 24, and I'll call it the census sin, is that God's anger started rising up against Israel. Now, the King James says that God told David to take the census, but the original language and other translations have a little bit more accurate that God was angry and David, as a result of that anger, chose to do a census. Basically, what David did is he went out and he counted all of his soldiers across Israel because he was about to initiate a draft. He was about to initiate a royal decree to build an army. As he knew that God was angry with him, he was getting his own strength secure, thinking that God might be leaving him. So he sent this census out and he counted it took about nine months and he counted all of his soldiers and as soon as he got the numbers he realized that he was in sin and he repented before the lord and he fell on his face and god did judge the nation for that sin and they fell sick with a great pestilence a disease and i want you to know this this was david's sin oh by the way david's sin with his absalom's remote was unforgiveness Things could have been different, but he chose not to address it. His sin with the last three was arrogance and pride, trusting in himself rather than God. He comes to a census about the census, but it was too late. Here's the cycle. I want you to take a look at this. Here's the cycle. David has a humble heart. He's broken, and then he is a man of worship, and he worships the Lord. But then that worship turns into comfort and he becomes a man who has a vulnerable heart. And then he falls into sin. The vulnerable, the vulnerable heart led him into sin. But then his sin was quickly addressed and he was broken and he was repentant. And then he was humbled and then he worshiped. And this was a cycle that continued for the last 20 years of his life. He was humbled, worship. He was a worshiping heart. He was vulnerable. He was filled with sin. He was broken. He was repentant. He was humble. This was a cycle that I think differs from Saul because when Saul fell into sin, it got deeper and deeper and deeper and he ran from God more and more and more. This is what makes David so different is that David, the Bible says, is a man after God's heart. doesn't mean it looked like God's heart, but it did in some ways. But what that means is that he chased or pursued God's heart. And every time he fell, 
He was quick to recognize his sin and respond. So here's what I want to talk about. Soon after this, his reign comes to an end and he dies and a whole new struggle between who's going to be king next begins. And that's what we're going to talk about next week. So real quick, these last few minutes, what's the walk away? What's, what do we do with all this dirty laundry? What do we do with the dirty laundry in our lives? Some of you have got some stinky clothes. You've got some stinky sin and it is dirty and you're keeping it a secret. It's, it's swept under the rug. It's in that hamper in the, in the closet and you can't figure out why the closet smells so bad. Do your laundry. Some of you got dirty laundry. So let's talk about taking care of the laundry. It's the laundry day today. Turn to your name and say it's laundry day. Here's the first thing I want you to know, the walk away from this story. This is what this, these passages are speaking to me about today is that, number one, sin does not just happen. Sin is sequential. Sin does not just happen. That means David's sin did not begin when he had sex with Bathsheba. And it didn't begin when he asked her to come over. And it didn't begin when he was walking on the roof and saw her and listened after her. And it didn't begin when he decided to get out of bed in the middle of the night. And it didn't begin that he stayed in bed instead of going off to war. It began in the habits in his private life that he allowed to lead sequentially to that sin. You see, every sin is a pattern that follows each other. See, sin of commissions are often the result of sins of omission. Check this out in James 1.13. It says, let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. Verse 14, but each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Now, the word lust there is deep desire. So this doesn't just mean sexual sin. This could mean lust for power, lust for money, lust for possessions, lust for popularity. This could be just any kind of intense obsession that leads you away. You're led and carried away and enticed by your own desires, wicked desires. Then when lust is conceived, it gives birth to sin. Now, the word conceived literally means there has a baby. When your lust gives birth, what it gives birth to is sin. All right? I want you to think about this for a minute. This is what I call spiritual LSD. Lust, sin, death. Look at this. It says it gives birth to sin, and when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. I want you to think about it like this. That sin in your heart is conception. When you act it out, it's the baby. But unfortunately, what comes forth is stillborn. It has no life. It brings forth a dead baby. As gruesome as this sounds, that's the context of this passage. Some of you experience the pain of losing a child and that heartache. The writer is saying, listen, that sin that you chase will only bring heartache, will only bring death, will only bring 
pain will only bring suffering. It will bring something that will tear your heart apart. And then he says, do not be deceived, which means don't fall for it. Don't fall for it. Number two, not only does sin not just happen, it's sequential, but we can't ignore or neglect sin in our life or others in our life. We can't sweep it under the rug like David. Instead, we need to be friends like Nathan who confront in love. The Bible talks a lot about confronting friends. And some of you, you know exactly who you need to confront this week. Some of you know right now a situation that you are avoiding at home that you need to talk about today. Some of you need to get the boldness of God like Nathan had and confront the people that you love because sin cannot be ignored or neglected in our life or the sins of others in our life. Number three, there's always consequences for sin even when we are forgiven. Even when we are forgiven, we still have consequences. I want to read the passage in 2 Samuel chapter 12. Nathan just confronts David. David falls on his face and repents. And God says, you are forgiven. But he also says this. He says, you struck down Uriah the Hittite with a sword and took his wife to be your own. You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword will never depart your house. Because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own wife. This is what the Lord says. Out of your own household, I will bring calamity on you. Before your very eyes, I will take your wives and give them to the one who is close to you. Which is exactly what happened with Absalom, by the way. And he will sleep with your wives in broad daylight. You did it in secret, but I will do this thing in broad daylight before all Israel. Then David said to Nathan, I've sinned against the Lord. Nathan replied, the Lord has taken away your sin. You are not going to die. But because by doing this, you have shown your utter contempt for the Lord, the son born to you from Bathsheba will die. Now, I want to make sure that you understand how this works, because a lot of people think that they'll say, well, God killed that baby. God did, you know, caused Absalom to do this. God caused all this violence and this pain. Guys, listen. God, as we read earlier, cannot be tempted, nor can he sin. What God does, you need to understand this, is that God simply removes his hands of blessing. And sin has its full reign in our life. Guys, listen. If you are walking in sin, the hand of God is not on you. And you might experience some blessings, but ultimately the hand of God is not on you. And the consequences of your sin will destroy parts of your life, if not all of it. When God allowed the baby to die, it wasn't that he caused the baby to die. It's his hand of blessing was removed and the baby died. But see, they understood that the Lord is in control. And they understood that it was the Lord that allowed it to happen. I want you to remember this tonight. I want you to read the events around the death of this baby. Second Samuel chapter 12, read that whole chapter tonight. Text me your thoughts. This is not the punishment, but the results of sin. Please text me those results. Second Samuel chapter 12, I'd love to know what you think about it. Now hear this. David's sin, like all sin, is never, never, never worth the price. 
Here's the fourth thing I want you to know out of this passage. We are to be careful not to idolize people. David is often on a pedestal. He's like King David, right? The city of David. He's like the throne of David. Israel today is calling forth for a king like David. They idolize him, but he is just a man and he's an imperfect man. The author of Second Samuel gives the cold hearted truth and it is not to be taken lightly. Guys, listen, keep your eyes on the Lord. Because people around you will disappoint you. It's not my intention to ever hurt you or disappoint you or discourage you. But I am not the Lord Jesus Christ. I am an imperfect person. And as wonderful as David was, and as good of an example as David was in many areas, he was still an imperfect man. And once we understand to keep our eyes on the Lord... And to allow and to follow men that God has put in our life, but to keep our eyes on the Lord, then even when those men and those women fall, we won't get disillusioned because our eyes were on the Lord. And I've talked to many, many people who've had their eyes on a man or on a woman. And when the fall comes or when tragedy comes or when a heartache comes or when some, something that's, that's ugly in the heart of that person comes to the surface. They're so angry at God and so disillusioned with the church. And I can't tell you how many people I know leave the church because they were disillusioned by a man or a woman rather than keeping their eyes on the Lord Jesus Christ. With your eyes on the Lord, you can trust to follow godly leadership that there's still great possibility that will disappoint you with something. So this passage teaches us, be careful not to idolize people. Zephaniah 3, 5 says, but the Lord is still there in the city and he does no wrong day by day. He hands down justice. He does not fail, but the wicked know no shame. People will fail us. Only God will never fail us. You know, I talked last week about the white hat and the black hat. You know, the white hat always is the good guys. The black hat's always the bad guys. Well, the Bible's never that squeaky clean. David wore a gray hat. There's only one true white hat person who ever lived. His name is Jesus. He's the only one who's ever without sin. Yet he became sin for us. The cross was that great exchange for us where we get to exchange our black hat for his white hat. And if only one uh, white hat man ever lived, then this we must acknowledge, which is number five, God uses imperfect people to establish his perfect plan. And this is what's beautiful about the grace of God in our life is that no one is perfect, but God uses imperfect people to establish his perfect plan. The longer I live, the more I realize that God uses cracked pots to hold and accomplish his purposes. Our sins and our plans can never hinder God's plan. Do you understand that? To suggest that we can somehow tie the hands of God and that somehow we must live up to perfection to ever believe that God could use us is a gross misunderstanding of the Bible. The only perfect one is Christ, but thank God he uses the imperfect to accomplish his perfect plan because I'm imperfect and you're imperfect. And the good news is that God can use you. And he wants to use you and he desires to use you. By the way, 
David's struggles, setbacks, and sins are evidence of the truthfulness of the Bible. While all spiritual books paint heroes as nearly perfect, not the Bible. The Bible gives the good, bad, and the ugly of every character in the Bible. All their great heroes are flawed. Life is not pretty. Moses, Abraham, David, Peter, Paul, all flawed. All of them imperfect. Who God used to establish his perfect plan. David's sin is not intended to be an excuse for us to sin. But it is a warning to all of us to show us the consequences that follow sin and the sin that we are capable of. It is a reminder that human leaders, as great as some of them are, will never fulfill, never fulfill the need for salvation. For deliverance is only found in the man, Jesus Christ, who is God. Here's the sixth thing is this story tells us that sin is ugly. Sin is ugly. Sin is ugly. Laziness, arrogance, lust, adultery, lies, deception, neglect, abuse, rape, rage, gossip, deception that is diabolical. Sin is ugly. Sin is destructive. Sin is violent. God hates sin because he loves you. He hates Sin because he loves us. The righteous anger we have when we hear of an experience like rape or abuse. When you read that story of of Amnon raping Tamar, his own sister, a child. I want to just snap his neck. I would have been like Absalom as well, hiding in the dark, waiting to kill him. But that was not God's plan either. And that sense of justice that we have, that little drop of justice and that sense of great anger that we have for evil is just a taste of God's feelings towards sin and injustice and evil and perversion. The righteous anger we have when we experience this says a lot about the good news, the bad news, the good news. And the bad news. Here's some good news to help you understand. I've got some bad news. All have fallen short of God's glory, and there's nothing to fix it that we can do. I've got some bad news. God granted us with his image, and we repaid him with our abuse. I've got some bad news. We have been tirelessly at work and have rightfully earned all the judgment of which we have been accused. I've got some bad news. This accusation bears a debt that all penalties of this magnitude must use. Your very life will be taken, and infinitely from God's presence you shall be removed. I've got some bad news. All of this is true. But this is not the only story the printing press of the world has introduced. For I've got some good news, too. Since there was not one person who could save themselves, God stepped into humanity's shoes. I've got some good news. This shoe-wearing God is known as the Christ, the anointed one whom the entire story of God has always had in its view. I've got some good news. He was pierced for our transgressions, for our iniquities he was bruised. He carried away our shame and oppression as his body was carried into a tomb. I've got some good news. This Jesus did not just die under the wrath of God, but the sting of death he has removed. 
for he rose from the dead so that from its depths new life he may now reproduce. I've got some good news. No, better make it great. That while you and I were filled with hate towards God, he did for us what we refused. I've got some great news. There is no amount of sin into which God's grace cannot be infused. There is no stain on your dress that God cannot make brand new. I've got some great news. It doesn't matter if you are a user or adulterer, alcoholic or murderer, prostitute or prisoner, all your sins can be removed. It doesn't matter if you are a hater of God, a neglectful father, a lover of wrong, a distant mother, all wrinkles can be made smooth. It doesn't matter if you are sexually broken, jealously potent, foul-mouthed, spoken, you are chosen to be cut loose. For God has perfectly saved you with his perfect substitute. I know you've got a lot of bad stories, but I've got some really good news. I want to leave you this, with this last point here from this passage. The good news is that grace and forgiveness is found at the cross. You might remember that when Nathan confronted David, he told him that story about that lamb whose life was taken of that innocent, pure lamb of the humble that was slaughtered for those that thought they had a lot. It's the story of a slaughtered lamb by Nathan that exposed the intensity of David's sin. It's the story of the slaughter of the lamb of God that exposes the immensity of our sin. Like David, you find grace when you acknowledge your sin for what it is, filthy, selfish. David acknowledged in full his sin and he was not cast from the throne of God but welcomed into the arms of Christ. David, immediately after he acknowledged his sin, wrote a song. Psalm 32 is one of them. Psalm 51 is another if you want to read that this week. Psalm 32 says, Blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord does not count against them and whose spirit is no deceit. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. By day and night, your hand was heavy on me. My strength was sapped in the heat of summer. Then I acknowledged my sin to you. You did not cover up my iniquity. And I said, I will confess my transgressions. And you forgave the guilt of my sin. See, David was an imperfect man, but each time he was confronted with his sin, he repented before the Lord. He was broken and he found grace and healing. And so can you today. 1 John 1, 9, I'm going to end with this and then pray for you. 1 John 1, 9 says, If we confess our sins, He, Jesus, is faithful and just, and He will forgive us of our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. In chapter 2, verse 1 of the same book, it says, My dear children, I write this so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, not only for ours, but for the sins of the whole world. 
Know this, God is better than whatever it is you're trying to chase. Whatever it is that's got a hold on your neck and on your hand and on your leg or on your soul, God is better. Will you take the time right now to talk to Jesus and confess your sin? Let's pray. Father, thank you so much that you are the forgiver of sin. So God, we confess them before you now. If you have a sin that is heavy on your heart like David, will you confess that? Just talk to the Lord about it right now. God, forgive me of my sin. Some of you, you need to name that sin that is heavy on your heart before the Lord, between you and him. Name it. Confess it. Confess your sin. forgive us of our sin. Thank you for the blood of Jesus Christ, which washes away all of our sin. All of our sin. All those ugly sins of David's life were washed away. And he found a new life in you, Jesus. And God, by the end of his life, he found healing. And he found hope. He was restored again. Thank you, Jesus. Restore our life. In Jesus' name, amen. I've got on the bottom of your worship guide a couple of things I want you to read this week. And uh, read also 2 Samuel Samuel chapter 12. Text me about that today. I'd love to hear your thoughts. But read uh, the notes that I, that I put in your, in your worship guide, some things. Two things. Number one, you need to confront somebody this week. Okay? And number two... Um, you need to understand the grace of the Lord that he has for you. All right? And you need to receive that grace. All right? Sean? Thank you for listening to the Living Way Church podcast. If you enjoyed this message, we hope you come visit us in Garland, Texas. For directions and more information about the church, go to www.livingwaychurch.cc.